Hello, my name is Gary Hoppenstand. I'm professor in the Department of English at Michigan State University. My favorite comic scholar is Julian Chambliss because of his tremendous critical insight into the culture and world of comics, as well as his insight into the diversity that comics can play in the industry. Welcome to the latest episode of the Graphic Possibilities Podcast. episode of the Graphic Possibilities Podcast, I spoke with Dr. Walter Greeson and Tim Fielder about their new comic, The Graphic History of Hip Hop. This comic was produced in conjunction with the New York City Department of Education. It's actually free to download for everyone. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop, this comic gives an overview and critically engages with the meaning and definition and impact of hip hop, not just simply in the United States, but around the world. This episode is especially interesting in part because it was inspired by the MSU Graphic Novels Club. This organization at MSU is dedicated to producing comics and involves students from around the campus. For this session, they were looking at world building and this was an opportunity for me to talk to two people creating a new comic, but putting it in the context of the question of creation and inspiration around the work that they were doing. So as one point during the conversation, you'll note that I'm sort of pulling questions from the audience and the audience is the members of the MSU Graphic Novels Club. The Graphic History of Hip Hop is actually free to download and there are links on the website and you can find the comic by searching for the Graphic History of Hip Hop on the web. And it's a great introduction to a fascinating topic. Stay tuned and let's give a listen to our conversation. First and foremost, thank you both for coming. This is a special sort of presentation I'm pouring in on the MSU Graphic Novels Club schedule. Uh, the students here are part of that club. They have a curriculum. Their goal during the year is to actually make a comic. They put out an anthology called the MSU Graphic Novels Club Anthology. They've been doing that for several years. And throughout the year, they work on that. They meet at this time every week, uh, sort of doing that work. I've tried to do my best to sort of help them out by uh, bringing professionals in to talk with them. With your big project, the graphic history of hip hop, I thought it was a great opportunity. So I talked to you two about this and let you introduce yourself because I know how famous you are, and I, I won't allow you to like come up with your own your own bio. Uh, they do know a little bit about you, but just just for prosperity. So we'll start with Walter, and give oh. us a little bio, Walter. Oh yeah, I'm a, a small farmer who grew up digging pumpkins, watermelons out the ground. That's for real. That's that's literally how I grew up. But yeah, now I'm a professor of history at McAllister College in uh, St. Paul. Mostly doing things related to Afrofuturism, technology, questions. I guess the other big stuff I deal with is racial violence, things like the Tulsa home, Tulsa race massacre that happened back in the 1920s. Wide range of stuff. A bunch of my students just put up a bunch of new research on maroon communities that I'm really excited about. And so if you want to learn the ways that we got to sustainably redesign the world that we live in, uh, wow. you know, that's that's the kind of work I love doing. My name is Tim Fielder, visual Afrofuturist and graphic novelist based out of uh, New York City and uh, not that different from Walter. I grew up across the street from the road from a cotton field. Uh, and But while in the past time as a child, I grew up reading comic books, reading comics that were wildly inappropriate for someone at my young age, like Heavy Metal Magazine. And it drove me insane when Star Wars came out. Uh, particularly when I began to integrate that modality with Black culture, and I became what is now called an Afrofuturist. But back then, we just called it Black sci-fi. Now, oddly enough, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I make my living from drawing about Negroes and spaceships. And I was literally today at the New York Comic Con showcasing the book that Walter and I have done called The Graphic History of Hip Hop, 
And I think the reason why Walter brought me on this project is because, you know, I I am a visual Afrofuturist and and uh and I, I'm also a cartoonist, but I've been doing it for a long time. So you get a little bit of you get the dirt and you get the freshness. So yeah, that's 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 why I am. All right, so here's what we gotta do. We're gonna, I'm gonna ask okay, you go ahead. A, a couple of questions to start things out, principally about the graphic uh, history of hip hop. And my first question for both of you is like, how did this project come about? Want me to start with that? Yeah, you start. So uh, for the last, I don't know, three or four years, I've been working with the New York City Department of Education on various projects that fit in my mission of getting academic scholarship, really brand new research into the hands of high school teachers and middle school teachers, elementary school teachers, just the overall process normally from when an article is written to getting into review and then getting into a textbook takes decades. And I was dissatisfied. So I wanted to get better ideas out to the public faster. So I was working with the school district on that for a while, and um, they needed hip-hop content. So I was writing about MF Doom. I was writing about uh, Run DMC. And so that work eventually turned into an opportunity to do a hip-hop comic. And so they said, so what would you write about? I was like, the history of hip-hop. I've been teaching history, philosophy of hip-hop for 27, 29 years. And so um, that's the first thing. And it was right around that time, I had just seen Tim do a project with Ronaldo Anderson. We were working with the Air Force on something. And it was just miraculous in the course of the conversations with the Air Force that Tim was sketching live in front of like an audience what an Afrofuturist sustainable society would look like. And like pieces of what he did ended up in some like high end vr commercials that facebook was doing and so yeah man like i was like oh see i knew it from jump but yes yes your art got turned into tv commercials you're joking i never saw that man <laughs> i will send you the link but like if y'all ever saw the you're facebook joking. commercial if you ever saw the facebook commercial with people sitting in the classroom and somebody's down at the front, and then they like project out screens. Everybody has their own individual screen, and they're able to work and interact while they're sitting in the auditorium. That Tim drew that for oh, the right. Air Force two years before it came out on television. And so that piece, I was like, okay, Tim's perfect for this. Now, I didn't know the complicated wow. history Tim had with hip hop and some of the folks behind the scenes in hip hop, but like it all worked, it all worked perfectly coming together about how his skill was able to preserve this kind of vision that I've had of why hip hop made my life possible. And so um, it was just a blessing that we were able to find the timing and make it work for the school district. As a project, Tim, very well-known graphic artist associated with uh, Afrofuturism, Maddie's Rocket, Infinitum. I know you have many projects going on, but this by your own admission, sort of outside your your comfort zone. What are some of the things that you did to sort of work work your way into the project? Like from a like, you know, kind of creative standpoint, what were some of the things that you did to sort of like get associated, get oriented to that hip hop world that was not your first thing, not your not the first thing that you thought think about? Right. Uh first of all, thank you for that question. And thank you, Walter. Uh, for for explaining that. Um, so uh, uh, since we're talking, we we trying to get be real here, right? So I have, I I have, I've had a kind of uh, interesting relationship with hip hop, in the sense that I am a practitioner of what I classify as the bastard cousin of hip hop. Uh, I was an Afropunk before they called them Afropunks. So if you guys in the class could imagine me about 30 years younger, 35 years younger, with a full head of hair and dreadlocks, I was a, a countercultural operator. I was a person I wore all black, you know, the Doc Martens, and I listened to Fishbone and Living Color and and uh, 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 all of that type of Black Rock, Black Rock Coalition stuff. 
Uh, I listen to alternative jazz. I would be in the audience listening to someone like Butch Morris and would be the only black person in the audience. So that's how I grew up in the late 80s, uh, being a young man in New York City. And, uh, but I always was around hip hop because that was the growing culture at the time. And so I became an editorial cartoonist uh, for a lot of the countercultural or some of the countercultural magazines in the East Village, uh, uh, between C&D, Village Voice, New York Press. So I would, from time to time, have to produce hip-hop-based imagery and I would do that with prominent hip hop writers like Mike Gonzalez. A lot of people don't know I did illustration for him. Harry Frickin' Allen. Well, I won't even go into that one. <laughs> you know, obviously the first published work I ever did, ever, was an article that was an illustration of Al Sharpton for Greg Tate for the Village Voice. So I've always been around that kind of musical culture uh, since I was 20, 20, yeah, 20. Oh, my God, 20, because uh, uh, I came to New York in 1987. But that would continue throughout my life. <laughs> and ultimately, but, you know, I wanted to be a comic book artist. So I started working for Marvel Comics, and I have an unpublished 63-page fully painted graphic novel on Dr. Dre's action adventure was never published. And so my life with hip hop, it's been like this thing where I'm there, but I'm not there. I've been publishing rap pages. You know, I, I was there for a millisecond when they first started Vibe magazine. Uh, Cause they took the writing staff of the village voice and basically airdropped them into the Vibe magazine writing staff. That's what they did. So, yeah, I've been around hip-hop for a long time. Walter bringing me on this project basically brings that kind of weird history full circle. And it was a challenge for me to do this work because I consider myself more than anything a professional. And Walter, I I think, I mean, he says why he did it, but he had to have known that he was taking somewhat of a karmic chance by doing it. And I wanted to honor that. I mean, I, I will concede. I didn't immediately get into it because I was nervous. I was like, oh, no, I got this book, got this book. But then when I got into it, I can say this book I put on the same level as Infinitum and Maddie's Rocket. And I did not start out thinking that I would do something like that. And I did. I, I went in with my heart. I gave my heart over to the project uh, because uh, this man took a chance on me. I need to make him look good as best I can. You take care of your people as best you can. Uh, and, you know, hey, I, I, I'm I, good at what I do. So, sure, I can I can do damn good work and extend the conversation for hip-hop. And why not me? So I hope I answered that question. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, Zoe asked a question. What inspired you to be a comic artist? And I will extend that question to Walter, because I know Walter has written not just simply this, but he's written other sort of comic fictive things before. So the question for both of you is why comics? Did you always know you wanted to work in comics, Tim? I think I know the answer to that question. But but what is your sort of origin stories related to the genre of comics? So we'll start with Walter with that one. Yeah, I went to a convenience store when I was like four or five years old. And, you know, my mom was in there getting whatever milk and butter. So we didn't have to eat the government cheese that weekend. You know, like it was just, you know, me being a little kid. And on the bottom shelf, there was one of these comics that had just a bunch of characters on the cover of it. It It's totally disorganized. Um, But it was from Marvel and uh, said something like official handbook. I had no idea what this joint was. And so what I did see is that the thing, the Fantastic Four's character, the thing was on the cover. And I saw the thing on a on a cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon back then. And I wanted to get the comics so I'd learn more about the thing. So my mom put like the 35 cents down and let me get this little handbook comic. And just every page was like classic art, 
about a specific character with like stories about their biographies, discussions of their powers. And it was like a little mini encyclopedia for like a little kid to run across. And so from that point forward, I was like into these characters, wanted to know more of their stories, um, ran into another random comic by this guy named Jim Owsley. And um, I want to say it was like one of his Falcon comics with, with Captain America guest starring. And to see the Falcon as a black superhero was just was bugged out. And so, um, yeah, I love comics from when I was very small. By the time the 90s rolled around, you know, like I was juggling, you know, the black sci-fi thing, the history thing. And so, like, I stepped away for a minute and I basically missed out on Milestone comics. And later on, Dwayne McDuffie kicked my butt over <laughs> not picking up his stuff when it first came out. But like. Those stories remain just just deeply embedded in me. And so when um, Christopher Priest came back from Marvel Knights and to redesign the Black Panther, um, I got I got in on that right away. And then um, that just changed my life, like working with Chris, working with uh, Reg Hudlin, talking with them basically every night online about what to do with the stories. Helped me come up with ideas and put ideas out about making Wakanda more realistic, not just a kind of like uh, Black Asgard. And so, you know, turning Wakanda into a much more grounded physical space based around stuff I was doing in graduate school with urban design, that turned into an encyclopedia for Red Hud Reg Hudlin. He gave it to Marvel. And then uh, a few years later, it became the basis of what Ryan Coogler and Hannah Beachler got a hold of. And so um, just changed the world. Like, I couldn't believe how good a job they did taking pieces of that encyclopedia and building it into what became the Black Panther movies. Tim, how would you talk about your origin story? And do you always know you want yeah. to do comics? Yeah. Yeah, decidedly less dramatic. Uh, I am the youngest of four siblings, all boys. Uh, and as the younger, you, you have no control over the entertainment or reading material. You don't have anything. They just stick something in your hand and they say, draw this. Or they say, read this, or sit down, or get out of here. Or if I catch you with my comments, I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? So that's how I became a comic book artist. I was, I was forced to be a comic book artist, you know. And uh, out of the four, the irony is, is I'm the one who stuck with it. Uh, but all of my brothers are artists. My oldest brother is this brilliant, crazy, fine artist. My second oldest brother is this brilliant musician, filmmaker, and my twin brother is a filmmaker who I collaborate on projects. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I've been doing comics since I was four or five. Um, and um, it's just I've always done it. That's, you know, you don't want me to do math, anything mathematics related or nuclear related or equations related. But comics, that's what I do. I've always done it. And all that's happened is that every time I came into contact with a dramatic influence like Star Wars or Heavy Metal or Ralph McQuarrie or, you know, any art. All it did, ultimately, even if I tried to push away from it, it would just end up adding to the comic. So uh, I became a professor. I, I think it was about one year where I decided, well, you know, I'm going to be a commercial artist, man. And that didn't work out at all. And I ended up going back to school at School of Visual Arts to become a professional comic book artist. I, I didn't even finish school. I was actually working in the industry while I was in college. And uh, I'm just always, always, even when I'm, you know, I've worked in the video game industry for about a year and a half as a, a lawsuit. I worked for Ubisoft. But what was I working on? Batman. So there was no getting away from comics. It's always been there for me. <laughs> and what's happened is there was a point where I was, it wasn't that I was moving away from it. I was dormant for a period, uh, but I was always working and I went into animation. But when I made the decision to go back into comics to, to full, fully embrace that I'm a black man doing black characters in science fiction in comics, my life was transformed. And so now it's opened up like, the graphic history of hip hop, things that I thought were over and done with years ago. Now it's, it brings back things in into my life. I mean, heck, I got to go to the Smithsonian in two days to do a workshop on Afrofuturism and comics. And then I got to do it again on the following Thursday 
at the Smithsonian. And, you know, I'm at New York Comic Con talking about Afrofuturism in comics. So comics is, you know, what's that? My man Garrett uh, uh, from uh, SNL, you know, baseball, comics, or Afrofuturism have been very, very good to me. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Um, this, this, the, this session, uh, the students are really thinking about world building and what does it take to create a narrative? So what is your process, each of you, when it comes to like constructing a narrative, constructing a story? We'll start with Tim because he's, he's always doing that all the time. Yeah. What's your process for constructing the narrative, constructing your world? Yeah. Uh, so one of the greatest, the word that I love uh, and I've just grown, grown to have more affection for it, is the, the the term graphic novel. I love the idea of a graphic novel because what it's saying is a novel which utilizes prose, but it's done with graphics, you know, representational graphics. And I love that because that defines, as opposed to comics, right? Because when you're talking about comics, Comics derives from the term like comedian or funnies, right? So when they did, when they created comics, those were offshoots of newspaper strips. So they were seen as a lesser form, right? That's just a fact. They were seen as lesser forms. They're, oh, they can be done cheaply. We can just recobble what's already been printed and we'll just put it together on the cheapest paper available, right? Uh, graphic novels on the other hand, uh, and I think primarily pioneered by Will, Will Eisner, uh, a little bit of um, uh, Eisner, definitely Eisner. I'm trying to think of someone else I would consider who did the long form books, basically changed comics and made it into this form that was elevated itself beyond this kind of ghetto-esque type form. Uh, and by doing longer form comics, I, you know, ergo graphic novels, you are required to do world building because you can't, you can't dial it in over 24 pages, right? You can, but you shouldn't. How about I say it that way? Uh, and what it's done for me is that, uh, particularly as it pertains towards this book, I want, what I'm looking for is plausibility. Plausibility is the utility that you exercise when you're telling a story that allows the audience to buy in to your story, right? So uh, there's no there's there's no gravity in space, right? But if we buy into the characters, then we don't have a problem with Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader not floating in anti, you know, in zero gravity because we allow it. It it allows us to buy in, right? Now you might say, well, that's an odd example, uh, but I'm saying that's when world building works best because at the end of the day, it's all made up. It's all make believe, right? Even if you're dealing with something that is completely uh, based on. In fact, you're still generating a work of fiction based on that fact, right? So part of what I do as an artist is I take it upon myself to try to do as much visual research as possible to add in the plausibility, right? But then I like to do what's a, a technique that I utilize from visual effects. How many people have heard of the term Greebly? Greebly, if you look at the models that were used for ships like Millennium Falcon and all, they're basically, they would take broken model kits and it would take those pieces and meticulously place them on the surface of those models. Now, the model didn't fly for real, but the Greeblies gave it the impression and that is utilizing a technique I call implied detail. So, for example, in the case of the script that Walter gave me, that script was, it had its heart in the political philosophy of hip-hop. 
he was his focus, and you can correct me if I'm if he thinks I'm wrong. The focus of it was to 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 make the point of how hip hop has changed the world on a geopolitical level, right? But he did not go into detail in terms of all of the players, all of the acts, right? So that's when my job. So Walter provided the words. My job is to provide the visuals, right? So we're effectively dancing. He's coming in with the words. I'm coming with the visuals. He responds to those words with more visuals. I respond to those words with more images. And we keep creating this gumbo that becomes more and more complex, creating something that is a mass of information, but delivered in a way that hopefully has heart, has reverence to the form, that pays honor to the sacrifice that these people uh, who produce this content and, and sometimes, we, oftentimes we're doing it under very adverse conditions, but also to show the love that's there. I could, it's like Walter loves hip hop. You know, me, I, I'm, a, I'm a square, but Walter love it. He love hip hop. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So my job was, I'm going to show this guy's love for the form. Does that make sense? So my world building had to convey that. One question people ask, and you both sort of alluded to it, so it's worth worth sort of digging into. When you say, when Tim says Black sci-fi, or Walter talks about Afrofuturism, it's not necessarily always clear what the relationship between those things are. And so from your own perspective, could you sort of define what you mean by Black sci-fi or Afrofuturism, what are the themes that unite it? What are the sort of structures that make it what it is from your perspective? Yeah. Let's start so, with Walter. Yeah. You know, on my end, and I'll tie in a little bit about the narrative process too. But um, you know, it's always striking for me that the the idea of black history is only about a century old, a little over a century old that people didn't believe people of African descent had history for most of the last 400 years. And so there was a struggle for 70 years up into the 1980s to prove to publishers, to prove to audiences that there was something to be read and understood. It's why something like the 1619 Project is still controversial today, is that there are so many people that have ignored and refused to believe that African history, African-American history, African diaspora history is real. And out of that ignorance came this assumption through the frame of science fiction after the Second World War, that in fact, the future by, by reflex and assumption and sometimes willful depiction was entirely white, was entirely European. And so it was rare to see a Black person depicted in the future, certainly not Black families or Black communities, um, Black contributions to the way civilization would work. Um, I will never forget watching Terminator 2 and the revelation that Joe Morton was the scientist who invented the basic principles for Skynet. Like, people were just like, what? What? The Black scientist? Oh, this is clearly just imagination. Like, there's no reality. But there's a whole tradition of Black scientists that goes back into the 1920s and even earlier that people just have no concept of. And so Black science fiction was this challenge under the, the writing of um, Octavia Butler, basically, is, is at the forefront. And um, we get uh, Dahlgren is another text that basically speaks to this uh, with uh, Sam Delaney. And so that piece basically is forming through the 60s and 70s that there is a source of African-American voices about the nature of the future and that there is an aesthetic and there is a philosophy about understanding human relations that can't be obscured by the success of Isaac Asimov's robot series. Like the, these pieces are important, they're valuable, but there's more. There's more about being a human being that's being omitted when we don't look at people who come from all over the world, who come from indigenous traditions or Asian traditions, we're missing out on this work. And I, I think of Isaiah Lavender is another colleague who does this, that looks at extraordinary contributions from different perspectives about the nature of what science fiction and the future can be. Afrofuturism is born out of that conversation 
where it's not simply about literature. It's not simply about uh, art or sculpture. Um, it's also about philosophy. It's also about just reworking the idea of being a human being and seeing all the different ways that we can be human and the way that being human violates these kinds of categories we inherit from the Enlightenment. And so Afrofuturism is a series of questions that challenge us to think more broadly about ourselves and our world. And for me, it takes a particular form of urban design and architecture and how do we create places that are actually more humane and more sustainable. But that's just one, one tiny dimension. Like another field I work in a lot is Afrofuturist economics. Is capitalism, industrial capitalism, digital capitalism, the, the highest form of human social organization that we can imagine in terms of labor and production. So Afrofuturism opens the door to another area that I, I develop now is indigenous design. How do we look back at systems of indigenous people around the world and understand that they never should have been wiped away. They never should have been dismantled by the projects of um, colonialism and imperialism over the last 500 years. So um, that's the kind of work that I see through Afrofuturism. And the narrative piece is, you know, I come out of uh, English literature tradition. I got trained to do that literary analysis thoroughly through my undergraduate years. And so there's supposed to be the building action and the way your your hero's journey unfolds and how you identify with protagonists. I'm always about experimenting and, and playing with these assumptions, uh, whether it's from the traditions of Mary Shelley and, and looking at the way 19th century fantasy and Edgar Allan Poe twist us and turn us and surprise us with uh, revelations like the Mask of the Red Death. Like, I'd like to play with puzzles and almost everything I design has layers of contradiction built into it where you can be surprised about the person you're looking at their perspective. And, and maybe they're not exactly as simple as you imagine them to be. And to me, that piece is, is directly a derivative of all the work I had done reading Afrofuturist related work over my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't really think there's much I can add to, to what uh, Walter said. I think um, pretty much hit most of the points. I can only, you know, if if I was going to add something, I would say that, you know, I was tired of Black folks dying in science fiction. You know, I was tired of Black women not even being visible for many, many, many years. They were not even there. You know, I was tired of Black characters being sacrificed and mutilated for the benefit of their white hero, mostly male savior. Uh, and as a result, I did a book where literally you can rip a guy's limb off, blow his head off, and it'll just grow back, and he can't die. You know, or there's a black woman in space who fights against Nazis and aliens in outer space like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, yet she is a black woman, you know, in an alternative like of 1930s, 1940s Jim Crow environment. So I see Afrofuturism as a verb. It is an act of creating alternative worlds that ultimately become the real world. That's awesome. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, obviously, comics is a collaborative medium. What's your process for that collaboration? Like, how does that work? Uh, what's, how do you how do you make how do you make the secret sauce? Do I show that? Show? Do you want me to show that on the camera? Yeah, you can do that. You can share. Okay. All right. Well, I, no, I'm asking Walter if he want me to show, man. I just decided it ain't up to you. It's up to him, man. Anyway. All right, guys. So, uh, so this is going to, what's, what's happening here, I think it's time for me to either buy a new laptop, which is not possible at the moment, but it's probably time for a clean system reinstall. That's what I think is happening. Uh, but I will do the best I can to show what I can. Now, so what happens is, is Walter will give me a script. Uh, all right. Now, I'm going to go to screen share. Are we ready? Coming over to screen share. And it's really going to slow down now. Let's just work with me. 
Can you guys see the screen? Yes, we can see the screen. Good, got it. So Walter gives me this. So you can see here to the right, we have his pages, right? Panel one, panel two, and that will have narration. That will have a description, and he'll have an indication of placement, right? Now, when I'm working on that, I am doing it in such a way where I'm taking what he has written as a general direction to where I'll always, I, it's my North Star. His script is my North Star, right? But as I'm following that North Star, I can deviate and detour to make his story richer, right? So, for example, you'll see here it says panel five, cityscape, Harlem, night, narration, Harlem. That image will become this image. So I'm going to scroll here. And so you can see here the numerous variants of this thing we went through. And I'm going to go here to the section that shows the breakdowns. I think the breakdowns are up here. And you'll see how ultimately uh, I get to what I'm getting to. So uh, hang on, hang on. We're getting there, we're getting there. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Nope, that's got to go in the other direction. Hold on, going back down, going back down. All right. Now, you guys can see I've done a metric ton of drawings on this thing, right? We're going to scroll down here. Hang on. We're getting there. We're getting there. Come on. Where are the breakdowns? You can see here, by the way, you guys should know, video, music videos are fantastic for photo reference. Fantastic for photo reference. All right. So here we go. All right. So when I take uh, Walter's breakdowns, I generate from that uh, what his his writing, his script, I break it down into visual, very loose uh, uh, layouts, breakdowns, so you can see how things sort of, um, uh, uh, I break down his story. So in that section where it said Harlem, if I could just find this thing here, this is very frustrating, hang on. By the way, you all, I think, I hope you all appreciate how much photo reference that I have had to collect. It just went on and on and on and on. It's crazy. Walter, I don't even think Walter has seen this. But uh, you are literally sitting under the hood here of how this, you know, was put together. Oh, my God. I, I'm kind of getting sad here. Uh, looking at all of it because I'm realizing how much of a lift this damn thing was. All right. So here we are. We get to the breakdowns, right? So when we get to the breakdowns, I am taking his script, and that script is starting off as loose sketches. And those loose sketches will ultimately turn into finished sketches. Uh, so, for example, Harlem, I would collect that as my photo reference, right? But that was offshoot from this, right? So when he wrote that part of the script, that actually turned into four panels or five panels, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Harlem. We see? But then the Bronx, I had to collect information, and that visual information here was were these things. See the building there? Did I want the Bronx? No, I chose not to get the Bronx. I chose instead with the, uh, instead of using tenement houses, I use uh, um, Yankee Stadium because Yankee Stadium is a landmark in the Bronx. For Harlem, it would be the Apollo Theater. For Brooklyn, I used the Greenpoint Bank building, the uh, clock tower building. And those images would be refined until they became tighter images. So, for example, these became page breakdowns. I'll just go through this. So I literally had to take his images and break them down into stories, right? And sometimes it was absolute. I was following exactly what he asked for in the script. And other times I broke away, like these sections here with the world and the West, those were implied in the titles, but he did not actually have a section of, okay, this page is a section showing Hollywood, 
right? I actually added that in there because I was building on what he had in the words, right? And ultimately, these would turn into these kind of things, addiction, poverty, violence, right? And this is the process. Now, once I got approval for that, I then moved to actually doing the finished images. And that, that particular case, I'll, I'll go to here. And by the way, again, metric tons of photo reference. When I say I've been drowning in rappers, I have been drowning in rappers. I'm so tired of drawing rappers, but you know what? No one cares because it just said we have to start on book two today. All right, let's keep going here. And I'll show you guys the finished pages here. By the way, this was the original uh, proposal we did for the DOE. So the style I knew was going to be based on this. And also, the actual structure there, that's a 3D object. So I used uh, all kinds of digital technology and techniques to draw my images. Finally, I'll say this. And then uh, I'll let you guys have it back here. Um, some images like this. This is the public enemy image. This image was originally done in 1990 for the Village Voice, but they never used it. Same for the Queen Latifah image. So what I ended up doing was doing this comic was an exercise and reclaiming the past and moving things into the future. You will notice here also, and this is the easiest thing to show here, how much portraiture I had to do over the months. Literally, I think I probably drew God, and this is not all of them, it had to be 130 rappers, people involved in the hip hop history. Uh, we drew break dancers, you know, they just went on and on and on, right? Lots of stuff we did. And I'm going to end here by saying uh, this book was a, uh, ultimately became a labor of love. Uh, the one thing I will say, I'll go here to this here, this section. Uh, at the end of the day, this project ended up being, for me at least, um, uh, something that I would I would say was easily one of the most complex parts uh, projects of my career uh, because there were certain things in the script that were there. So you can see this image here. I added Gil Scott Heron because it was necessary to have him there. But we go to the section here where it talks about uh, the boroughs, and so that's what happens. The script grows more complex and all that photo reference that I created or I acquired ultimately uses is used to enrich the story so first it was Harlem then it became Harlem common but Manhattan then the Apollo but the facade that I use on the Apollo has Parliament Funkadelic on there because Funkadelic is part of hip-hop history just like James Brown so yes that is uh what it has been and it has been a true true uh labor of love to do this and i'm so proud of the work and ready to start a book too i'm sorry i don't know if uh the the uh system became bogged down but uh I, could you guys hear everything i said yeah we can hear you okay good good so uh i know that was a little long-winded i know that was a little long-winded sorry but I, I just wanted to show everything that happened yeah what um that that was great. Uh, I think one question that a student had is about your favorite project. Like, so I know that's a really complicated question, but like, what's been a really impactful project for you uh, in terms of your you know kind of creative project? We'll start with Walter. Yeah. No. Um... So, you know, Dr. Chandler knows, knows stuff that's at the top of my list, but this, this comic is definitely a dream come true for me. So I'm going to say, you know, I'll never be able to repay Tim for the vision he brought to this. 
Um, before this, I would probably say um, the same called the T. Thomas Fortune Cultural Center in, in New Jersey was a historic site that was about to fall apart and, and be lost. And um, we were able to save it. it. took about 10 years of work. But um, as a creative project, uh, they did a comic <laughs> based on Fortune's life uh, right before the center reopened. And, and he was a figure lost to history. So, um, yeah, the, the piece about bringing T. Thomas Fortune back from the dead and restoring his home was was is definitely up there for me um but it, it's just entirely different from the kind of imagination that's involved with with this and so you know hip-hop basically is the core of who i am and to have the chance to do like the, do something like this to pass it along is it's definitely the top of the list for me yeah uh you know it's it's interesting question all of my question my projects uh, for many, many years, I consider each of them my babies. And and uh, would that be Infinita, Dr. Dre, Maddie's Rocket? I would say, though, with this hip-hop comic, I, I will be honest and admit when I first started on that, I was like, well, okay, this is just a freelance job. You know, like Dre, you know, it's a freelance job. You know, but I learned long ago that when you put your name on something, you can't, you just can't let it out unless it's good. Because it's going to come back and get you every time. So I don't do that. Now, that has caused me all kinds of problems when mugs are waiting on the art. All kinds of problems. You know, I've had mugs lose hair over that. But at the end of the day, your people have to feel like he gave 150% on this project. Right? And so Walter brought me on my job. I know he loves hip-hop. I'm like, I'm going to make sure that when people see this damn comic, they're like, damn, this dude went in. And that's what I do. So that's why this comic has, I can't believe I'm saying this, it has as much meaning as my other books. I don't see it as a lesser. It's just, just this other thing I did. That's, that I put just as much care and love into it as my other books. That's just a fact. I have the scars to show for it. So I'm putting it right up there with all the rest of the babies. That's that's fair. That's fair. You know, I I always uh, recognize people's time. And I said this would last about an hour. But I will ask uh, if anybody in the group has uh, one final question they want to put to Walter and Tim. You can unmic yourself and, and ask it. Or drop it in the chat. You get the last word to ask these two creators about whatever it is you want to ask them about. So go at once. I have a question. All righty. There you go. Tell them who you I'm, are. Oh, I'm Zoe. It's Zoe. been really cool listening to you guys in this past hour. <laughs> I was curious what what like if there's one thing you could tell for young artists young storytellers what would it be i'll take that one go in every time go in every time you you must you must you know if it, whether you're a prose writer or a graphic novelist or a filmmaker because all you have to we live in a world where talent is not enough I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true. Talent is no, not enough. You have to be able to not even just work hard. You have to be almost, you have to be singularly focused on delivering the best product you can because that is your reputation. So if you're a young artist, and I never had anyone tell me this, I had to figure that out on my own, making mistakes along the way. When you do your best work every time, quality is cumulative. It's cumulative. It, it, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It, it, it builds trust. You are the product. Your book is just one aspect, but you are the product. When you do a great book, Zoe is the one that people are buying. Because you got another book you're going to do or another film you're going to do. You got it? So that's my rule for you. If you if it got your name on it, 
It can't be no BS. It can't. Because if you put out BS, it's going to come back on you every time. I'm sorry. I know that was a little bit raw and country. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'll just add this real quick. I'll add on that. I see the question from Kyle, too. Um, So I'll say something that you got to hold on to is uh, I asked a similar question to a very famous filmmaker when I was just starting out. And he was like, if there was one gift I could give to everybody, it would be to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And so it's an adaptation of a Winston Churchill quote that defines success that way. The only way you succeed is by constantly going out and trying again and trying again and trying again and getting getting up when you get knocked down. The other piece that I tied to that actually came from the V for Vendetta comic and uh, the film that got adapted from it where adversity will beat you down. Like life will come at you in ways you could never expect before you set down the road. But all you have left is this one inch of your integrity. There's just little, little piece that you can never give it away because you can never get it back. And if you go from failure to failure and you keep trying and you never lose that heart, never lose that integrity, yeah, you're going to find your path to to the best end that you can get for yourself. So um, favorite board games, um, hmm, I'm going to say cash flow, which is going to get me in trouble because it's a proto-capitalist game. But like uh, I, I use it to teach people how to build cooperative economies and so how to stay out of poverty for your entire life. So I use it in ways the game designer doesn't doesn't want me to use it. But uh, cash flow is a miraculous game that shows you how to maintain uh, a, a lifestyle that'll actually make sure you never you're never poor. Uh, for me, my favorite board game was Clue. Because Monopoly made me horribly depressed. <laughs> because you were either very rich or very poor. So I was always down with Clue. And on that note, we will say good night. All right. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. What Are you Tim, saying Tim one minute? I've got something for you. Okay. So uh, uh, still formulating it out, but I am doing an ad- graphic novel adaptation of W.E.B. Du Bois's The Comet, which will be due out. Uh, at least I will finish the art for it. Uh, the intention is to finish it by mid-January, and it will be on exhibit during the upcoming Con- Carnegie Hall Weimar Republic Festival from January to May of 2024 and the Afrofuturism exhibit at the Smithsonian has been extended from March to now June of 2024. Awesome. Yeah. So if you're interested, make your way to New York and see Tim's show or make your way to DC to the Smithsonian. All right. Thank you very much, fellas. And we will uh, see you on the internet. Hello, my name is Leonora Paula. I'm a professor in the English department at Michigan State University. My favorite comic character is Storm from the X-Men because she kicks some ass. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Graphic Possibilities Podcast. Don't forget to read some comics.